Well, it is a great privilege to um, bring the Word of God to you and to myself this morning. Some of you may know we're moving into uh, what we in the Church of Nazarene call faith promise time. If you're not hung around Nazarenes much, or if you just haven't really paid attention over the years, uh, this is um, our commitment to missions. The Church of Nazarene supports missionaries throughout the world, and that costs money. And so faith pro- in Faith Promise, we take pledges to support that missionary work. So over the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking a bit more about Faith Promise. But before we talk about missions, um, I want to talk about mission. If you belong to an organization, I do, you have undoubtedly sat through meetings where mission is discussed. It's a cultural phenomenon of our day. Every organization seems to have a mission statement. Some long, some short, they all seem to have one. So let me talk about this for just a minute. Microsoft, for example, has a mission. I always just assumed Microsoft's mission was just make a lot of money. In fact, Microsoft has a formal mission statement that doesn't even mention money. It is to empower every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. And I suppose whenever we get that colony on moon, they'll probably have to revise this. Every person in the cosmos. But they got a mission statement. Starbucks has a mission statement. To inspire and nurture the human spirit. One person, one cup, one neighborhood at a time. So, there you are. Who knew? Organizations, at least in my experience frequently worry about not having a mission statement, having the wrong mission statement, drifting away from the mission statement, not having a clear mission statement, and hence the many hours we spend in meetings fine-tuning our mission statements. And I'm making fun of it. It's not all bad. It serves a good purpose, but you understand. Every human community, like the church, can have, and these days probably does have, a mission statement. But all these have one thing in common. There's something that humans put together in a meeting or a committee. And I've done this myself. They exist to articulate goals that we think are worthy. And many of these goals are, in fact, worthy. And they deserve my, my time, my energy, my, uh, my money. But none of them deserves my total devotion. Maybe my partial devotion, but not my total devotion. But there's good news. And the good news is that God has a mission. You and I are invited to participate in God's mission. And this is the mission which actually does merit my total devotion and everything that I have. What is mission? Well, in the Bible, mission is about sending. God sending the Son into the world to be a Savior. Uh, The Son sending the Holy Spirit into the church. 
And then we are sent. The church is sent out into the world to be instruments of God's mission. So God has a mission. God invites you and me to participate in this mission. God asks you and me to devote ourselves completely to this mission. This is the one mission that deserves the totality of my being. And there is more good news. God's mission will not fail. Starbucks mission may fail. Microsoft's mission may fail. I mean, they, they may fall short of empowering every living human being in the cosmos. Mission Church of the Nazarene's mission, we may fall short of it, but God's mission will not fail. The question that faces us is not whether God's mission will fail, but whether we will fail to be a part of God's mission. That's the danger. So with that in mind, I'd like us to consider a couple of parables in uh, Mark's Gospel, the second chapter. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and said to him, Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And so Jesus answers, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and so are the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Now, I actually don't know that much about fabric. In fact, almost everything I know about fabric comes from this parable here. And I understand that somehow it's a bad thing to put a new patch on old cloth. And I I really don't know that much about wine and wineskins either. But fortunately, you don't have to know anything about fabrics or wine and wineskins to get the point of the parable. The point of the parable is the new and the old. How does the new relate to the old? Can the old receive the new? So if we need to, we could come up with different parables to make the same kind of a point. So let's talk about this just a minute here. What is the parable not about? The parable is not primarily about fasting. This is the occasion that sparks the parable. It's not really about fasting. At this moment in Jesus' ministry, fasting is not what he wants to talk about. The parable is also not about legalism. That's where it gets tricky because Jesus is responding to the Pharisees and we have a temptation whenever we hear Pharisee, to jump immediately to legalism. This is not really about legalism. Uh, John's disciples are fasting as well as the Pharisees. So this is not about the, what we think is the Pharisees' problem with legalism. We have, to, we have to look more closely at what this parable is about. So if it is not about fasting, and if it is not about legalism, What is it about? Well, as I said, 
It's about the question, can the old receive the new? The Pharisees and John's disciples are engaging in a practice that goes way back. It's old. The Pharisees are good Jews. John's disciples are good Jews. And so they are fasting. And nothing suggests that what they're doing is wrong or inappropriate. But the question of the parables is, can the old receive and, in fact, recognize the new for what it is? The problem of the Pharisees and John's disciples is that they couldn't discern the new thing that God was doing. I mean, they saw it, but they didn't see it for what it was. They couldn't. They were rather obsessed with carrying on with the old, and they couldn't see the new thing that God was trying to do. Now, the parable is not saying that the Pharisees and John's disciples were wrong to fast. The parables are not even saying that everything old is bad. And at my stage of life, I'm very appreciative of that affirmation. But they are saying that sometimes the old cannot receive the new. And worse, sometimes the old stands in the way of the new. It blocks what is new. And when that happens, there is a problem. Here's an illustration. In the 1930s, there was a, uh, this debate actually took place in the uh, United States Army. Will we continue to have a horse cavalry, and will it form an essential part of our forces? Now, 80 years later, we look back and wonder how this could possibly have been a serious point of debate. In fact, it was. Coming out of World War I, horse troops were still being used. They had these newfangled things called tanks and trucks that some people wanted to use, but there weren't very many of them. And so a very serious debate took place. What's the future going to look like? And there was a segment of the army that insisted on having an ongoing and, in fact, essential role for the horse cavalry. Now, these are people who did not see the future coming. They were rather obsessed with the old and could not appreciate the value of the new and, in fact, had a hard time receiving it and, indeed, in a few cases, tried to throw roadblocks in the way of the new technology. So this sort of thing happens in history. This is not unknown, um, even outside the church. Now, this is not to say that everything old is bad or that everything new is good. Maybe the old sometimes is better than the new. I've been told by people who take this thing very seriously that vinyl records truly are better than CDs and MP3 files and streaming. I'm going to take their word for it. And maybe paper books really are better than Kindle. I happen to like Kindle, but 
I'm willing to entertain the thought that maybe paper books truly are better than electronic books. So, the parables are not trying to say that everything old is bad and that the new is always better than the old. But the parables are noting that sometimes the new is better and that sometimes the old does create a block. We can say this. No matter how good the old is, God's mission is about the new thing that God wants to do. This mission is not about preserving the past. God's mission, in fact, looks forward. We really have to think of God not as behind us, pushing us forward, but as ahead of us, calling us forward. Whatever our moral intuitions are, God usually is up in front of us, calling us forward. And our task is usually to try to catch up to God. If you have had young children, you will know the following experience. Shopping, perhaps, and you're wanting to, well, you're wanting to go from point A to point B in the shortest possible distance and time, and your child does not. Your child wants to look around. Your child wants to wander. Invariably, your child ends up behind you. And so you're constantly trying to get the child to catch up, to move forward, to hurry up so that we get to point B as expeditiously as possible. I think that describes us in relation to God. God is out in front with a mission. We are lagging behind, looking at this and that, getting distracted, falling behind. So we want to think of God as in front of us, calling us into a future that is new and sometimes unexpected and unanticipated and sometimes unimagined. But still, we find God ahead of us not behind us. Now, before, because God's mission looks forward, there are two dangers we need to talk about. One is that we will fail to be part of God's mission. A few years ago, I was making a trip. I had to get on an airplane and fly somewhere. And, you know, I made the preparations, bought the ticket, the whole thing. And I had in mind the departure time, arrived at the airport, the stipulated hour before, and discovered I'd missed my flight because I had lodged the wrong departure time into my brain and never bothered to check you know, the documents, and so I missed the flight. This happens in the church every so often. You know, we get a certain fixed idea in our minds about what we think God wants, and then and then we miss the real mission. But this morning I want to talk about a greater danger. Not that we'll simply miss God's mission, but that we will stand in the way of God's mission. And sadly, this has happened a few times in Christian history as well. Let me provide just a few homely illustrations. Um, my wife and I belong to Costco. We shop there quite a bit. And uh, inevitably, we, we experience something like the following. 
Uh, we're trying to uh, drive down the um, the driveway that, that, that moves in front of the church, in front of the warehouse. Somebody stops in front of us to let out a passenger. The passenger slowly ambles out, gathers their stuff, slowly walks over to get a cart, goes in the warehouse. All the time, the car is just sitting there watching them, I guess to make sure that they get in there safely. Meanwhile, cars are piling up behind. Or once you get inside, there's always the person with the big old shopping cart who plants themselves right in the middle of the aisle, looks around, trying to find whatever they're trying to find. You know, Costco's always moving stuff around. It's easy to, you know. Oblivious to the fact that there are people behind them, piling up, not able to maneuver around them because they're right in the middle. This seems to happen every time. Think about those people, bless them, who drive the speed limit on the freeway in the fast lane. Now, there's a technical sense in which they're doing the right thing. But they're blocking the way. And they're actually causing a hazard. Have you ever known someone at work who believed they were doing the right thing, the sort of appointed task, but in fact were so oblivious they were impeding progress? Like they were just simply in the way of everybody. Um, I've become a fan of World War II history. Here's an anecdote. World War II, General George Patton is out doing general-type stuff. Comes upon a soldier who's uh, high up on a um, telephone pole repairing the wires, stops, engages the soldier in conversation. How's it going, soldier? Fine, sir. Doing your job? Yes, sir. Those enemy bombs getting in the way of your work? No, sir. But you are. Oops. Sometimes it's possible to be doing what you think is the right thing, but actually to be in the way. People lack, sometimes, situational awareness. It's like the people in the long gas line at Costco who don't know the routine. You know, when you're sitting in line, you're waiting, you get your credit card out and ready to go. And you've already punched the button that releases the door to the gas cap. So when you pull up, you run, you pop out, you run around, you turn, you get the gas cap off, you slip your card in, you punch the two buttons real quick, you gas up, you go. Fast, fast, fast. Then there are the people who pull up slowly. It's always slowly. Take about 20 seconds to get their seatbelt off. Open the door. Slowly get out. Walk halfway around the car. Remember that they left the card in the car. Slowly back. Get the card. Amble around. Take off the gas cap. Slowly hobble over to the gas dispenser. Put the card in two or three ways the wrong way before they finally get it right. Carefully study the indicators to make sure they put the right button. You know. 
It's not like they're doing something wrong, but they're in the way. Right? During all this time, we could have got two or three more people through this line, and some people have stuff to do. Well, in the same way, Christians can sometimes be going about our business and not realize we're actually blocking the progress of God's kingdom. We're just, we're just oblivious. This happens when, like the Pharisees and John's disciples, we fail to see, that the new, see the new thing that God is trying to do, even if sometimes God has to maneuver around us to get it done. Well, what is this new thing that God is doing? What is God's mission in the world? Uh, the Bible has various ways of expressing this. Um, there's one in particular that I like, and it is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Let's take that as a statement of God's mission. God's mission in the world is to reconcile all things, to create a unity of all things in Christ. Why is this important? Because the world divides. The world divides people into categories and tribes and groups, and it separates them. It divides people into genders and races and socioeconomic groups, Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free. And it separates these groups. You know, humans have an instinct toward tribalism. We're not really happy unless we've found people just like us, grouped together like a clan, hang around each other. We have a kind of built-in us-them mentality. And we're always suspicious of them. I suppose that, you know, if we just keep going with this, we'd finally get to the point where I was just my own group. And I was the president of my own group. Decisions are really fast that way. And I'd be really happy with the membership, too. And then you could have your own group. And you'd be the one member. and You'd really like that group. But that's not God's mission. God's mission is to bring all the different groups, reconcile them, and create a unity in Christ. This cuts at the very deepest instincts of human nature. This is the last thing that humans are good at. But this is God's mission. This is why the church exists. What does it mean for this reconciliation to happen in Christ? This is where God's mission becomes difficult. Because in Christ really means in the church. 
and not in the church in an abstract sense. Colossians means in the congregation. The reconciliation, the unity that is God's mission is supposed to happen right here. In us and by us. It doesn't happen in the heavens. This is the place. And because this mission runs contrary to our instincts, we face a challenge. Well, how well are we doing here? Right? We have a mission given to us by God. How well does, is the church doing? In the first century, the pressing task, for Paul at least, was to bring Jews and Gentiles together into one church. To overcome the centuries of ethnic tension and hatred and to bring Jews and Gentiles reconciled together in one body. If you've read the New Testament, and I hope you have, it's a great book, you know that this was an uphill struggle for the early Christians. It was not intuitively obvious to all of them that this was God's will. It took a very long time for this to happen. But at length, the church was able to check that box, to scratch that one off the list. But the work was not done. As Paul says, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. And so another, present, another pressing task was to overcome the division of slave and free. This one took a lot longer. It was more than 18 centuries before Christians finally got that message. And even today, it is not common in Christian congregations for black people and white people to worship together. It is distinctly uncommon. So this one is a mixed report. We've begun after 18 centuries to make a bit of progress. We've still got a ways to go on this one. We're not yet a reconciled community carrying out God's mission. Even if someday we manage to check race off the box and declare victory there, we will not be done. Uh, some of you may remember uh, and in the, uh, the Second Gulf War, there was that moment when the President, George W. Bush, dramatically landed on an aircraft carrier unexpectedly, and addressed uh, the sailors, I think there were some troops there, and famously declared, mission accomplished. A little bit prematurely, it turns out. Because the struggle actually went on for about another, I don't know, 15 or so years. So even if the church somehow, someday, manages to achieve racial reconciliation and unity, the mission is not accomplished just yet. There are other forms of division and separation that we will need to address. Today's Sunday. On Tuesday, we will be voting in a national election. Uh, there will be many consequences of this election, but here is one. We will be reminded once again 
that these days, what separates Christians is not doctrine, it is politics. Now, in the distant past, Christians argued a lot about doctrines. Where do you stand on predestination? What do you believe about infant baptism? Things like that. Those days are long past. We've all entered into an agreement not to raise those issues with each other. We have a kind of, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, just leave me alone attitude on doctrine. But we found something else to separate us, and that is politics. On Tuesday, if you watch the news, you'll see the map with the red and the blue states. Sometimes it's the red and the blue counties. It's just a fact of political life these days. The tragedy is that the division of red and the political division of red and blue translates directly into the American church. The American church has red and blue congregations, red and blue Christians. So here's a point of separation that cries out for reconciliation and unity. Now, we don't really even know how to do that. And I think we have to say we haven't tried to learn with much diligence. But if we are to participate in God's mission of reconciling all things in Christ, and that means in the congregation, then it's intolerable that we can allow political divisions to go on. Now, I don't mean differences of political opinion. I mean political divisions to go on with the anger and the angst that always goes with them. And the truth is, there are types of separation division that you and I cannot yet imagine. God knows them, because God is out there ahead of us. But our limited imagination does not allow us to grasp some of the new things that God wants to do, some of the forms of separation that God wants us to overcome. It took 18 centuries for Christianity to grasp the point that separation between black people and white people is contrary to God's mission. What was the problem? They just couldn't see it. And even today, some cannot see it. Just as the Pharisees and John's disciples, they couldn't see the new thing that God was doing. It was in front of them, but they couldn't see it. And so, if we're sensitive to the parables, we have to ask ourselves, what do we not see? What kinds of division and separation are out there that God sees, but we don't see? That's why the church must constantly pray for enlightenment so that God's Spirit can help us see what right now we cannot see.
so that we can be faithful to the mission that God has given to us. So we are coming into the season of faith promise. Here we commit ourselves to God's mission. The challenge that lies before us is to see and embrace God's mission as something new that God wants to do in and through us. The parable of the patch and the wineskin tells us that whenever God does something new, there will be something old that stands in the way. And sometimes that obstacle is us. So our prayer must be for God to allow us to, to open our eyes so that we become agents of reconciliation and unity and not obstacles to God's mission. The question is, will we be old wineskins or new? In a minute, we're going to sing the doxology. You know the final line, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This is the basis of the mission. The Father sending the Son. The Son sending the Father. Let us think about this as we sing the song. The song is about mission. And ultimately, we are sent. Let's pray. You, Lord, who sent your Son into the world to be our Savior, send us to faithfully carry on his mission. Give us the power of your Spirit so that we may be instruments of Christ's mission. Help us to be new wineskins with eyes and hearts enlightened by your Spirit, able to see you, your new work, and willing to be the community of unity and reconciliation. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.